Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so hopefully you are recounting the riveting stories that are repeating of Hezekiah and Sennacherib and everything facing Judah, which is mm-hmm. funny because we feel like we're trudging through repeated stories, but it's like the highlight of everything that happens in the northern of our kingdom split um, is that we have a king who is generally faithful, uh, at least in the, in the face of attack. So, um, But we get the stories again, uh, and Sennacherib invades Judah. And so um, it's interesting because this is coming from the Isaiah perspective. If you've noticed, Isaiah has felt very poetic prophetic up till now and then suddenly kind of switches into this narrative um and it almost feels kind of straight lifted between the two stories in some Mm -hmm. ways and so um but uh yeah isaiah tells us stuff that it's pretty similar to what we're getting in the other stories and some commentators will say that isaiah or the chapters 36 and 37 that we read this week are a bridge between kind of two sort of books of isaiah yeah our voices yeah yeah Yeah. um and so i think something too that I don't think I mentioned this last week is just like for us to remember as we watch the story Hezekiah trusted faithfully in Yahweh and yet he still experienced adversity he still experienced struggle the Assyrians still attacked Judah and so this comes in direct conflict with the prosperity gospel believing that when we trust God nothing bad will happen but he still had opportunities to trust God even more yeah, God, God allows, uh, sometimes to use the, the tired analogy, God kind of allows Judah to bend but not break and um and so that, that bending may still come, that God mm-hmm. will not give you more than you can handle, but he might still give you a fair amount. And so, um, or at least he won't give you more than you can handle. He might give you more than you can handle, but with his presence that you can handle it. And so, um, yeah, so it's just, it's, it's sometimes, yeah, that prosperity gospel stuff just does not line up with the Bible. So, yeah. And a lot of what God does is to teach us dependence on him because that is where true joy and satisfaction is. So if we pray like God, give me joy, then this may be one of the circumstances that will bring that joy about. Yep. Hezekiah, um, in the face of this, he does pray for deliverance. Um, he does seek Isaiah's help, uh, all the things that we've seen before. Uh, And once again, reminds God, look, this is going to be good PR for you to defend your name and fame here. Like this is, this is an attack on your character by, Senate crib. So, um, and so the Assyrians are boasting, uh, and God seems pretty tired of the arrogance of the Assyrians and God basically hooks, uh, Senate and takes him back home. And then we get the introduction that there's two years of thin crops. And then eventually in the third year, like all the crops get restored, which has a little bit of Elijah overtones. Mm-hmm. We know that they had two years of famine before the third year when it finally rained. And so, um, I don't know if Isaiah is making his, connection here to uh, Elijah himself. But anyways, so let's jump to second Kings. Yeah. So now we get also introduced to this idea that Hezekiah was sick. Uh, some commentators put this in the past, uh, before all the events with Seneca rib, some don't, uh, just depends on how you want to sort out the timeline of these books. Um, but, uh, he's sick and Isaiah ultimately says Hezekiah will ultimately be better. Um, and Hezekiah prays to God. He gets 15 more years in the process. Um, it's a little bit of a bonker story and I'm not Super totally bonkers. know what to do with like the sundial going backwards. I'm sure there's more there that I'm just not understanding at this moment and that's fine. 
Yeah, I do think Hezekiah's prayer and dependent response here is important for us to acknowledge and look at. So God allowed this sickness to hit Hezekiah and even sent Isaiah to tell Hezekiah of the coming death in order that Hezekiah might turn to the Lord. And so this is, I think, a good picture of God allowing difficult circumstances and even suffering to enter our lives in order that, first of all, God can show his glory, and second of all, that we can learn to better trust him. If this actually was a flashback, it was likely very good preparation and faith building for Hezekiah to trust God when he was confronted with issues with the Assyrians. Yeah, it's either preparing or continuing to show Hezekiah's uh, faithful heart, depending on where you put it in the timeline. And so uh, Hezekiah and, uh, inter- interacts with these Babylonians. Uh, so this envoy shows up and Hezekiah decides to show him all the treasures that Israel has, which um, on some level seems like an odd move, but uh, mm-hmm. and Isaiah seems to think it's an odd move. He even kind of goes, Hezekiah, what, what are you doing with these Babylonians? And Hezekiah's basically response was, well, I'll be dead eventually. So uh, I just figured I'd show him everything. So it's, it's a bit of a weird interaction uh, between them all. Um, but uh, yeah, at some point, and, and if you're, because we'll read the story again in Chronicles, it's even more peculiar for that crowd who knows the Babylonians eventually come and destroy. It's going to be a little bit till they show up, but um, there, there's some nuance to going, why is Hezekiah showing these Babylonians around? And it, there's even a reference to like the tunnels and stuff like that. And so uh, I'll include a link in our show notes that um, the, those tunnels, Hezekiah's tunnels still exist in Jerusalem to this day uh, that they were carved out so that the water um, could, could stay there while they were under siege. Yeah, it makes you think of the passage about how pride comes before the fall. And I think in this case, maybe Hezekiah's pride got the best of him. And dependence on God that we we have seen modeled in Hezekiah's life so beautifully, it's got to be a daily practice for us. I can't count on previous faithfulness or previous obedience to predict that I will be dependent and faithful in the future outside of the grace of God. And so uh, jumping to Second Chronicles, you probably noticed uh, the same things that continue to be themes in Chronicles. Hezekiah and the priest are working together for the, mm-hmm. remember this is the Chronicler's time uh, when they're restoring the pencil, the the temple and so the priesthood really matters right now and so yeah uh, the the author of chronicles is certainly highlighting all these hezekiah connections to the priesthood yeah and we see all israel working together to stop this false worship so i love hezekiah's leadership here and that he contributes to his generosity but he also gives a role and ownership to the entire kingdom and nation so they all feel like they had a voice and um, were able to help get rid of the other gods and idols and worship yahweh alone so Sennacherib shows up, and then he kind of blasphemes God's name once again, saying Yahweh is no better than any other country I've conquered in their gods. And then uh, the Lord delivers. Isaiah and Hezekiah seek the Lord together. The Lord cuts off the Assyrian army, and they return home. And everyone celebrates, and they offer a bunch of offerings to God and to Hezekiah. And then, and then we get like the health story again from the chronicler's point of view, and um, Hezekiah is given a sign, but then a sign ends up causing him to be kind of prideful in such a way that it ends up affecting all of Judah and they all have to repent. It's definitely a different story. Um, and then we're described, we get the Babylonians described there too. And then we find out that that's actually a test for Hezekiah. And it's right after the Hez- chronicler said Hezekiah had amassed all this stuff. Um, God sort of tests Hezekiah as he sort of takes these Babylonians on a tour of all of his stuff. So uh, we're not really told exactly the outcome of the test yet, or at least we're not going to read that yet. Um, but we do find out that Hezekiah dies an honorable death. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a peculiar cutoff for us of where's the story going. Right. And how does that Hezekiah really end? Yeah. So we'll find out next week. Stay tuned. <laughs> 
All right. Uh, and then you jump into Ephesians again uh, from three to five. And um, Paul, after just talking about this mystery for the first two and a half chapters that's been revealed to the Gentiles and the Jews that they're becoming a family of God, um, Paul Paul kind of um, moves into this prayer for uh, the church that they would be strengthened, um, mm-hmm. not for war, not to, not to like strengthen like physically, but in their inner being that they may know the love of Christ, which apparently is unknowable, but they need to know it. Mm-hmm. And, um, but that they would understand it, the fullness of the love be rooted in it, uh, and filled even more. I think even more of a shock of a phrase that, that they individually would be filled with the fullness of God. Yeah. Now, if you're a, a good Greek, like that's a, that's a bit of an odd statement to be filled with the fullness of God. And so, um, I think that also even gets into Paul's like, but God is able to do just that, like even more than we can imagine. Like I know you can't even imagine what the fullness of God and understanding the depths of his love is, but he can do that. He can do that for you. And so because of the power of the work in us, he could fill you with the fullness of God. Like you can be a, 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 picture, a picture, an image of God on this earth and filled with the love of Christ because of the Holy Spirit's work. Yeah, as we read it and as we reflect on all of these things and all these characteristics of the love of God, we should just be filled with this desire to want that. I think at the core of all of us, you know, we we want this type of communion with this being who is so great and so powerful and so loving. And when we really get this, which is why Paul is praying that we would get it, we're not going to settle for nominalism. We're not going to settle for the desires of our flesh because we know they won't satisfy us compared to the amazing love of Christ. And then we get a good therefore transition uh, in this book. Uh, the first three chapters were one kind of teaching. The, the back three kind of go a different direction in terms of um, now how you live or walk this out. And, and Paul even says, therefore, uh, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling which you receive. So that that teaching that Paul just gave us on um, not, not just the, the, the good news of, of Jesus's death and what it accomplished, but the oneness that comes from that, the prayer that you just prayed about them knowing the love of God, the fullness of God, they're going to now live it out. And so um, that includes teaching them to be one. It also teaches them to, to love by being gentle, showing humility, bear with one another's burdens. Um, yeah. And Paul uses this idea of oneness multiple times, even in just this text that they have one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one body, one spirit. One, like they are all one. This this faith, this this thing that they are now a part of as Jews and Gentiles is is a one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that they are not um, all these different parts of something per se, but in their unity, it's not the same thing as uniformity. And I think that's where Paul kind of goes next, where he uses this analogy of one who ascends and conquers and then distributes the plunders amongst the um, his people. And so uh, Jesus is the one who's conquered the grave and conquered the enemy and then distributes gifts to his people. Not all of them are going to be the same. Um, and I think God, uh, he points that out. Um, and maybe this is past tense that, that God has given the apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, and everything. It could be present tense, but um, the, the role is for the equipping of the saints. And so um, the, 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 some of the gifts are for um, the diversity of the body, but for the equipping of the saints that, that would lead to a more mature community. That's not too tossed to and fro by all sorts of teaching, but it's formed more and more like Christ, fully functioning as his body, once again, built up in love, as Paul would emphasize. And so um, that bo- idea of a body, it becomes a driving metaphor, I think, for the rest of this book. Yeah, I think 
there, I really got stuck on the first few verses of this section. Again, it's so hard. I want to dive into every specific part, but this command to live a life worthy of the calling we have received. And then Paul is really clear on what that looks like. To be worthy of that calling, we are to model humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and peace. And so consider that idea of a life worthy of the calling you receive when you are reading about politics or other opinions you disagree with, when you are interacting with people on social media, when you can't align with another believer from another denomination or secondary issue, what does it look like for you to live worthy of the calling you've received when you prioritize the things Paul prioritizes here in this book? Yeah, because the, the next couple of sections that you guys probably noticed, like like there's a lot of interpersonal relational things that Paul continues to get into when he mm-hmm. talks about taking off sort of your old self, your old humanity, and putting on a new humanity, the new self. Like, and and the old self sort of sensuality, greed, purity, account, and we read through the list. But this new self, I mean, so many of those are are interpersonal that we would speak truth to each other, that we would be resolved not to let anger get the last word, and that we would build up with the words that we have, that we'd be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving. Um, not words that, that are always descriptive of, of Christians in, in current culture, uh, particularly those online. And so, um, but, but that's what we're called to do. Walk in this sort of love that, um, Christ has exemplified for us. The one who gave himself up for the sake of others like that. We need to imitate that. And so, um, the very sins of Ephesus, like sexual morality or maybe coveting wealth, like stay away from those things. Be marked with Thanksgiving. Like what the words that come out of your mouth should be marked with Thanksgiving, not with tearing others down, crude jokes about other things. Like do your words, do they ooze Thanksgiving for the things of God, for other people in your life um, or, or not? And, and that's where Paul's pointing one. Like that's the new self where you are so countercultural because you're just speaking of Thanksgiving. And in fact, like you would even sing songs towards other people like that. That would be sort of markers around your life because you don't walk in darkness anymore. You walk in light. So um, like, I think Paul's getting into this, this, comparison like he even points out there's things in Ephesus that are too shameful for me to even write about and and so you you're called to live this distinct different way and and so be filled with the spirit not with alcohol and like maybe it's common in Ephesus but be filled with the spirit which includes speaking truth includes singing to each other and making music giving thanks and all things submitting to one another um that's that's countercultural like mm-hmm. in a world where everybody's after their own thing demanding their own power or would we be willing to be the people who relinquish power for the sake of somebody else like that is what Paul is driving after yeah evidence of us being in Christ is given or based on how we interact with those around us. And I mean, that's what it comes down to. And I think there should be, there is an external difference between those of us who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ, how we care for others and how we love others in big things. And also in our small little interactions will indicate that we have put on the new self and we have put off the old self and we are living under the authority and the renewing spirit of Jesus Christ. And again, this is a gift. It's not something we earn, but it's already ours and we can walk out of that new identity in Christ. Yeah, yeah. Sanctification might be slow and it might be tedious, but if you're not able, yeah, and frustrating, but if you're not able to look into your rear view mirror of life and go, okay, there was something I used to be and now there's something I am now, 
then, then there's something you're missing out on all the work of the spirit in your life. And so, um, as, as we would say, like, it's, it's not salvific. Like your salvation is completely dependent upon God's free gift to you, but you are saved. You're not saved by the fruit of your faith, but you're not saved to a fruitless faith. I think that's what Keller would say. And, and so the, the, the faith that saves you turns you into a new thing and starts you on a new trajectory with new desires and a new heart and a new mind. And, and there should be some evidences of that. Mm-hmm. And so, and all this talk about uh, um, uh, being willing to, to submit to one another, to, to have this sort of other centered mindset and way of living um, that, that includes even within the family. And so <clears throat> I think there's some ways Paul might be speaking in sort of countercultural ways and in, in how um, husbands and wives interact. And uh, I, I appreciate uh, Eugene Peterson's, the, the message kind of rewording of this section. I think it brings a little more clarity to kind of what maybe what Paul's after uh, when he says, wives understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership for his wife, the, the way Christ does for his church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. And um, I think it points out just sort of the, the, as your husband follows Christ, that you're willing to um, um, submit, support, uh, f- take take and uh, and um, follow that lead in a way, um, because that's a, that's a picture of of you in the church uh, as a wife. But and Peterson continues for husbands. Husbands go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole and his words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. And so Paul, uh, Eugene picks up on what Paul's already emphasizing, which is that oneness idea. And I think if you find a couple where those two things are marking each other, that, that would be a healthy marriage. Like it's not, it's not about the domineering and and the position of a husband that would abuse his role as the one who is to love their wife as Christ loves the church. It's, it's the, the, the picture when pursued together is a beautiful picture of, of both acting as Christ and the church and sort of the storyline. Right. This is not an impressive, an oppressive instruction to women, but it is a liberating instruction to both that when we are doing this, how God designed, we will both live the most fully out of who God created us to be. So women are no longer considered to be property, but they are nope. given dignity and value as image bearers to be participating members in their marriage and even receiving this instruction from Paul. And the husbands are invited to really turn a culture and even this Roman household code up on its head and serve. Um, and so we just have this beautiful picture in marriage of, of how Jesus cared for us. Yeah, it is certainly the, the picture Paul's painting in a Greco-Roman sense. It's definitely counterculture to their norms. Um, and not only that, but but the instruction and sort of Paul's kind of come around to, to being like, this is the mystery. Or this is what marriage is all about, is that your marriage is meant to tell the story of the gospel. And, and like that is the design for healthy marriage to do. And so, um, the, the desire is to, to pull that out, uh, for, for these folks in Ephesus to go like, this is what I desire out of your marriage. I desire your marriage to tell about Jesus and his church. And so, um, yeah. All right. Uh, Psalm 68. 
Yeah, so I think we see David celebrating God's triumph. And even if you don't feel like you're winning battles in the moment, we can look forward to the end and know how it ends. And so we can sing this psalm as well, remembering that we, because of Christ, are going to triumph over evil. Yeah, yeah. God fights his enemies. The righteous will be glad. But God, it's interesting because there's a lot of talk about power and over creation and some of this grandiose language. But he also, it, the, the psalmist is like, but God also cares for like the the, the fatherless and mm-hmm. the outsider, the downtrodden. Um, so it's sometimes showing the, the, the both sides of that, the God who conquers, but he also conquers for the sake of uh, those who are on the margins. And so, yeah, yeah, part of that triumph is the redemption of those on the margins. Yep. And Psalm 50. Six. So I think there's, you know, a lot of times I think we read too much about ourselves into Psalms instead of looking first to God. But I do really think that this Psalm has a personal impact of God's grace within our own lives. Um, and so we can focus on the fact that we don't have to be afraid or he remembers every tear we've cried and he answers when we call. So This kind of makes me think back to Ephesians 2, just fully understanding who we are in Christ because of God, but realizing what good news who we are truly is. Yeah. And and this psalm, you get a little bit of header that David, um, this is when David gets to Gath. And this is the, if you remember back to the story where he suddenly acts like he's insane uh, for this Philistine king. And um, so like the context is a little tricky for me. I was kind of read it and be like, okay, who's the enemy for David? Is it Saul? His army? Is it the Philistines that he's stuck with right now? I'm not totally sure. But the themes are still like, completely the same, no matter who he's running from, um, where David is still absolutely trusting God to deliver him from whoever the enemy actually is in this moment. Um, and, and sort of the, the, the constant drumbeat that we get throughout the Psalms of David just being like, I, I trust you. Like you've delivered in the past. You're going to deliver again. Um, and, and I trust you with this. Yep. And so Proverbs five. Yeah. So I think the thing that stood out to me the most in this was that, the author was criticizing the forbidden woman because she does not ponder the path of life. And I had to kind of step back and think, well, how often do I ponder the path of life? What does it mean to live according to life, even as Jesus being the way and the truth and life? So kind of the encouragement for me out of this was just to ponder and think about what it means to live in the life of God rather than uh, the world. Yeah. And and if Proverbs, uh, as most people, I think, kind of view it, sort of this advice from a father to a son kind of stuff, it's like, look, like, stay away from adultery. Like mm-hmm. you can destroy your relationships. You can bring about destruction in the whole rest of your life when other people take advantage of this, uh, of whatever you pursue here. So focus on your, on your own spouse. Enjoy in, in a co-ed kind of teaching here, enjoy him or her. And, and, and like, don't, you don't need to look somewhere else. It's only going to bring destruction to do that as if God's teaching about sort of monogamy is a really good thing. And so, yeah. So next week. So we're going to look at the life of Hezekiah again next week. And because we're spending so much time on Hezekiah's life, I'd encourage you just to take some time afterward to reflect and pray on what you learned about God through Hezekiah's life and what you can learn about your own life through Hezekiah's leadership struggles and faithfulness to God. Uh, So make all of our time in Hezekiah and Hezekiah's life count for your life personally. And in the New Testament, as we begin Philippians, just Read through Acts 16 again to remember how the church started and who was part of it. I really, I I don't know why, but I really love the Philippian church. Uh, it has like a special place in my heart. And that chapter in Acts does too. 
And so, yeah, for me in the Old Testament, um, as we kind of head out of the story of Hezekiah, things are going to go south really quickly. Um, and then we get the prophet Zephaniah kind of sneak in uh, to start speaking about that. And as you read it, kind of notice that his calls to repent. Like it, it seems like sometimes the prophets are like, this is all going to go bad. It's sorry. Um, but Zephaniah has a little bit of a, 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 a call to, to respond to these people from these people. And as we get into the New Testament, um, yeah, Philippians uh, could probably feel like a little bit of a breath of fresh air. Not that Ephesians was all that rough either, uh, but some of Paul's letters have included heavy critiques, like in Second Corinthians and others. Um, and not only that, but we're reading prophets that are heavy critiques. But Philippians kind of serves, even in his intro, Paul's like, hey, you guys are fine. Um, it serves as sort of this encouraging letter. Um, and so um, absorb it as sort of like this moment for Paul to be like, oh, you guys are good. And, uh, and, and, and to have almost like this, um, yeah, this, this friend that's encouraging you in the faith. Yeah. So that's it. Thanks y'all. Thank you. Thank you.